We're taking our Bibles right now and opening them to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Today, chapter number three, Galatians chapter number three, it's on page 914 in the Pew Bible. It's in the rack right in front of where you're sitting if you need a copy. We'll also have some of the scriptures up on the screens this morning uh, as well. Galatians chapter number three this morning. We've, uh, for two chapters now in our study of Galatians, looked at the Apostle Paul contrasting two different roads, two different approaches by which humanity attempts to find God. And those two approaches, of course, are the pathway of works, human achievement, or the pathway of faith, faith or works. And you know the wide divergence of difference between the two. I've said many times all of religion across the globe is divided into one of those two camps. In fact, all of them are on one side except for Christianity. Every world religion believes that the human worshiper has to find his or her own way to God by what they do. Only Christianity is on the other side of that great continental divide. Christianity says you don't have to do anything. You just have to believe. You do have to believe in the work that God has done, but if you trust in your own works to get to God, then you're going to be disappointed. So these are the two roads that people tend to try to approach God upon. Faith promises life to the believer. Works promises life to the doer. Faith declares only God can save Works declares that humans have the power to save themselves by what they do. Faith majors on the grace of God. Uh, Works major on human achievement. And today as we come to Galatians chapter 3, what we're going to find is Paul turning away from himself. He's been the subject of what he's written about for the first two chapters. This great biographical detail that he gives us in chapters 1 and 2. And now he directly goes back to the Galatians and he confronts them because they're the ones that's obviously moved away from faith as a means of salvation. Look with me at Galatians 3 verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now stop with me there for a moment because there again we have Paul all hot and bothered, hot under the collar. And it reminds us kind of the statement of astonishment that he opens the letter with. I am astonished that you've so quickly deserted the one who called you by his grace and have found your way to another gospel, not that there is another one. So he's surprised here, he's angry, and he just can't believe what they're doing. J.B. Phillips, in his translation of this passage of Scripture, instead of saying, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? His paraphrastic translation began by saying, Oh, dear idiots of Galatia. And that's what the word foolish means, basically. It means unwise, unintelligent. And so Paul has this position that the Galatians, in turning away from the gospel was not only an act of spiritual desertion and treachery against the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, it was utter foolishness on their part. It was just a dumb thing to do. So much so that Paul wonders, kind of tongue-in-cheek, has a sorcerer cast a spell over you? I mean, surely it would take more than 
a bunch of misguided teachers to cause your eyes to wander from the crucified Christ that you heard from me. I mean, what's the deal? Are you under the spell of a witch doctor? Who's bewitched you? Who's cast an evil eye upon you? Well, here in chapter 3, Paul moves from sarcasm to a very serious argument beginning in verses 2 and following. And the argument that he's going to enter in on uh, is designed to convince the Galatians of their foolishness, of the unwise response of turning from the clear gospel of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, to another gospel which was <clears throat> no gospel at all. I want you to imagine with me this morning a courtroom scene because that's what we have here. And Paul is playing the role of a prosecuting attorney. Chapter 3 is probably the most overlooked passage in all of Galatians. And you know why it's the most overlooked? Because it's hard. I mean, there's some hard statements in here. Some very challenging statements. Statements that can be confusing or a little bit perplexing. They say that there's a difference between, the primary difference between an educator and a teacher is that an educator takes the simple and makes it complicated, while the, te the teacher takes the complicated and makes it simple. Well, chapter 3 is one of those passages of Scripture that will test your abilities as a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to give it our best effort this morning because what I find in the first 14 verses, and this passage of Scripture could be three sermons, very easily three sermons, but I don't want to belabor the pack. We're going to look at it because it's all one long argument fundamentally, so we're going to take it together. Paul makes in his one argument three compelling arguments about the supremacy of faith in terms of our salvation. He begins, first of all, with what we might call a personal argument that relates directly to the, uh, to the Galatians and their own personal experience with salvation. And then he's going to make a historical argument from the Old Testament. And then finally, he's going to make a personal argument, or a theological argument, rather, that's related to the cross. We'll begin, first of all, with the personal argument that Paul makes in defense of faith. And it majors on this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit by faith or by works? As we read here just in a moment, the first five verses of Galatians 3, you're going to find up there made almost exclusively of questions. And beginning with verse number 2, the focus of Paul's argument is on the Holy Spirit and how the Galatians, in fact, when he was among them on his first missionary journey, preaching the gospel of God unto salvation when they were saved, how they received the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse number two. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain, does he who supply the, uh, supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, remember that Paul's making an argument here about two roads, but ultimately one way. Is the way to God by works, by what we do to earn it, or is the way to acceptance with God instead by faith? And he begins here by reminding 
the Galatians, that the genuine believers there had obviously received the gift of the Holy Spirit, as all believers do when we're saved. What's at play here is how they received the Spirit. When did it happen? What part did they play or what role did they play in receiving the Holy Spirit from God? When Paul was with them on that first missionary journey, he reminds them they, they clearly didn't receive the Spirit by being circumcised because they weren't circumcised. They didn't receive the Spirit by changing their diet according to the Jewish Mosaic law because Paul didn't demand that they change their diet. That wasn't how Paul rolled. So they knew they'd received the Spirit. How? Because there was this incredible outpouring of power among them. That's how they knew. Their lives had been changed. Their thought life had been changed. Their actions had been changed. There was obvious demonstrations of power during that first missionary journey. When Paul was among them, sick people were healed. Lame people walked again. Demons were cast out. I mean, how, how, how was that so? Did all of that happen because those people there in Galatia conformed their conduct and their religious observations to the ways of the Jews? Is that how the Holy Spirit came upon them? And Paul knew the answer was an obvious no because he was with them for the better part of the year and he preached no such thing, no such gospel. That's what these false teachers were there preaching now. Paul simply preached one thing and what was it? Christ crucified. He says that in verse 1. Was it not before your very eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? That's Paul's way of saying, did I not paint it like on a billboard for you? If you were here a few weeks ago, the artist that was on the stage did that crafting and then painting, painted the first one upside down. And then turned it over and it was like, aha, that's probably the way the preaching of Paul was. It didn't make sense to many of them at first, but then the Spirit began to move among them. And as the Spirit began to move among them, it was like what happened with that guy when he turned the painting upside down. Everybody went, oh, wow. Well, of course it was a lion. I knew it was a lion all the time, right? Well, that's what happened to them. I drew the picture of Christ crucified right before your very eyes. And then the Spirit fell when you received the message of the gospel by faith. You didn't do anything for that to happen. You just responded with faith. And with that simple response of faith, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit to move into their life, to indwell them, to reside within them, to encourage them, to guide them, and to instruct them, to work with them. Man, the power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to live the Christian life. Isn't that right? Some people are prone to say that Baptists don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a Greek word for that, baloney. We're absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit. We have to have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's why when we're saved, the Spirit of Jesus comes into us in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and He indwells the believer. And he provides the necessary power and strength and encouragement to obey the Word of God. Apart from that, we'd have no hope from obeying the commands of this book. The way way we're able to do it is by the power of Jesus Christ alive in us. We call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the very nanosecond of your salvation. Not a year after your salvation, when you grow up a little bit, not two years later, not when you add a certain degree of maturity, 
Some teach it that way. The Bible does not. No, you receive all of the Spirit of God you're ever going to get the moment you become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 13. Very critical statement. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. When you believe, you got the Spirit of God, period. When you heard the gospel, when you responded to the gospel, when you believed in the Christ of the gospel, you were saved, and when you're saved, you're sealed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. It happens all at the same time. And that being the case, Paul wants to know, why are y'all being so foolish? Why are y'all backing up? Why are you, why, why are you embracing cir- circumcision when you've already received the gift of the Spirit of God and His presence was obviously manifested among you? Why are you ex- insisting on doing it yourself, on the works of the law to supplement the gospel when the gospel needs no additive? It's just Christ and Christ alone. Man, this is a great place to begin this argument that Paul's making here. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by faith or did you receive the Holy Spirit by works? And the answer, of course, is clear. Then as now for all of us, the Holy Spirit is a gift from God that you cannot earn any more than you can earn salvation. The indwelling Spirit of God comes along with salvation. He is a gift that's received into every transformed life by faith. You can know that you receive the Holy Spirit because there is change. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creation. How do you know? Holy Spirit in me. Old things have passed away. All things are become new. How do you know? Christ alive in me. Christ in me is the hope of glory, in me, in me, in me. It happens from the moment that we're saved. You can know that you've received the Holy Spirit. You can know when you receive the Holy Spirit, and you can know how you receive the Holy Spirit. It's by faith. But Paul not only asked, what about the Spirit? He asked a second question to these people. What about Abraham? And this takes us secondly to the historical argument. He begins with a personal argument about their own experience, was the Holy Spirit received by faith or by works, and then he goes to the Old Testament to give us a historical argument, was Abraham justified by faith or by works? Now, let's begin again with verse 5 to keep the context. Does he who uh, supplies the Spirit to you And works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Verse 6, hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Doesn't say a thing about circumcision. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, verse 8, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, 
saying, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, so that those who are of faith, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Faith, 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 faith. And every bit of that applied to a man, not in the New Testament, but a man in the Old Testament, like going way back before there was even any such thing as a Jew. Abraham was like the first one of those, right? And God just said, I'm, I'm making you one. That's how it all happened. God called one man unto himself. You're going to be a special person and you're going to be a, follow, or a uh, father of a great nation. And we're going to call them the Jews. And that's who they were. And it all started with Abraham. And as we talk about Abraham here as a model, as an exemplar for our own life, a prototype for our own life with God, Paul brings him into the picture and every other word applied to him, it seems like, is faith. Now, some people see that as an ironic thing, that Paul would go to Abraham, of all people, as a supreme example of what it means to be saved by faith. But John R. W. Stott, in his book on Galatians, calls this the master stroke. This is a master stroke. Because, you see, <clears throat> if Paul can make his case, then all those law-landing false teachers there in Galatia that are trying to undermine Paul and the gospel that Paul's preaching, all those false Teachers would have to put a sock in their mouth. They wouldn't have any other argument to make. Because all of those guys looked to Abraham as the most revered man in Judaism, rivaled only by Moses. So if Paul can make his argument here, that just ought to shut the case, close it completely, both for the false teachers who are preaching a false gospel and for the Galatians who'd been obviously duped by their arguments. The key statement here is in verse number 6 where Paul quotes one of the most consequential verses in all of the Bible. In Galatians, Galatians 3, 6 is basically a verbatim quotation of Genesis 15, 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The reason that's one of the most consequential verses in the Bible is that not only is it found in its original setting, in its original context in Genesis 15, 6, where we see it for the very first time, but it's also found in the Bible verbatim three other times. So that one verse, Genesis 15, 6, is in the Bible pretty much word for word four times. You almost never find that in Scripture. There may be a time or two where a, a verse from the Old Testament might find its way in the New Testament. So there are from time to time some rare instances where a verse is in the Bible twice. But best I can tell, there's only two situations where one verse of the Bible is in there four times. So knowing nothing more than that, you know this is a very significant statement. And with this one verse, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. With that one statement, Paul removes any doubt that the man of Judaism who perhaps held the distinction of having the largest face on the Jewish Mount Rushmore was not saved by what he did. He was saved by who he trusted. 
Not by his works, not by the law. But Abraham was justified before God the same way we are, by faith and not by works. I've heard it a hundred times since I was a little boy in little classes. Well, how were people saved before Jesus died on the cross? And what's the number one answer? By keeping the law. They kept the law. That's how they were saved before Jesus got on the scene. No. No, they weren't. If you could be saved by keeping the law anytime, there's no reason for a Savior to come and die on a cross. If you could be saved by keeping the law in the Old Testament covenant, then you could be saved by keeping the law now. There should be no distinction. Nobody has ever been saved by keeping the law. Abraham or anybody else, whether it be the Ten Commandments. Anybody in here keep the Ten Commandments perfectly? Never jacked it up, right? Now, you might come close, but then you get to the very last one that says, thou shalt not covet, and it just blows the whole thing out of the water, right? Because we do that like 18 times an hour, particularly in Western civilization like ours. No, Abraham couldn't have been saved by keeping the law. You know why? Because he didn't have a law to keep. The law wasn't given until Moses on Sinai. That was four hundred years after Abraham had died. There were no Ten Commandments when Abraham was alive. There was no Mosaic legislation. There were no dietary restrictions. There was none of that. And so he couldn't have been saved by the law, but even if he'd had it, he still couldn't have been saved by it. No, the Bible says here, it says it in the Old Testament. And all in the world Paul does is just lift it right out of Genesis 15. God called Abraham to himself. How, why was Abraham saved? Because God showed up. Abraham wasn't looking for God. Abraham was an astrological pagan that worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. He was as lost as lost could be. And God just simply showed up and said, hey, come unto me. And Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. The word counted is a, a counting term, and it literally means based on Abraham's faith. The word believe there is our Greek, uh, the Greek word in the New Testament for faith. Literally what it says is Abraham faithed God. He deposited his life in the hands of God. He turned himself over to God. He fully surrendered his life to God in absolute trust and in response to that simple act of faith. God wrote on the ledger, righteous. And now Abraham has the necessary righteous, uh, righteousness to connect with a holy God who is himself absolutely righteous. And that's how Abraham was saved. He believed God, trusted God, had faith in God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Never forget, Abraham didn't have a thing to offer God. Not any more than you have to offer God. Living among the Chaldeans in a pagan land, no cash of good deeds, God was the farthest thing from his mind. He was drawn to God solely by the sovereign grace of God. This is what Jesus meant in John 6, when he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
perhaps the greatest example of that anywhere in the Bible, is the man Abraham. He heard God's call, responded to it with faith, and on that basis alone, God credited him with the necessary righteousness to stand forever in the presence of a holy God. Is everybody with me? Amen? Abraham saves Abraham saved the same way I was saved. Saved the same way you're saved. The only difference between Abraham's salvation and my salvation is perspective. Abraham looked forward to a cross he didn't fully understand and a Christ whose name he did not know. We look back to the cross and to a Savior who died on it. That's the only difference. He anticipated it. We reflect backwards on it, which is exactly what we're going to do in a few minutes when we take the Lord's Supper. But there's not any difference in terms of how standing with God happens then or now. It's not a matter of works. It's a matter of faith. That's what Jesus himself said about Abraham, John 8, 56. Jesus is looking at the Jews who are dependent upon their works to find favor with God. And he looks right at them and says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would what? Say it out loud, please. That he would, that he would see my day. Abraham died centuries before Jesus made that remark. He rejoiced that he would see my day. In other words, he knew a Messiah was coming. He just didn't know how it was going to pan out. He saw it. He saw it and was glad. Our faith looks back. Abraham's faith looked forward. The means is no different. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Everybody tracking with me, would you say amen? Paul's on a roll. He's arguing a case in a mock court before the Galatians who have deserted the gospel of grace. And he makes, finally, a theological argument. Does the cross support a salvation by faith or by works? And what Paul does here, beginning in verse 10, is show us why it's so problematic to rely on religious law as a means of salvation. Look with me at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a what? A curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by, would you say it out loud please? All things written in the book of the law and do them. How much of the law? All things in the law. So if you can't keep all the law, the Bible says you're what? You're cursed. That's right. Anybody in here kept all the law of God? 600 plus commands in the Old Testament. How many of you here this morning have kept every single one of them? Cursed are you? That's what it says. And when I read something like that, I'm thinking, okay, I got a problem. Because you don't have to convince me I can't keep all of that. Sin won't allow it. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Do you think? For the righteous shall live by what? Quotation right out of the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. 
Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Let's stop there for just a moment. See, the thing about the law is the law, the law hadn't, doesn't have anything to do with faith. The law is not faith-driven. The law is obedience-driven. So God gave the law and basically said, okay, here's the standard. And Jews were taught, basically, this is what we need to do. Nobody ever said anything about believing it, just doing it. So all you got to do is keep the law as it's given. It's clearly written. Here are the rules. Over 600 of them, all you got to do is keep it. And immediately, obviously, we know that's the problem because that's impossible. It's impossible for anybody to do that. And if we can't perfectly obey the law, then how could you possibly argue that the Old Testament law or any set of religious rules are sufficient to save a person? The law always falls short. That's a dead-end road. Look at James 2 in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in what? One point has become accountable for all of it. This is why Paul says here that the law places us under a curse. Because all you have to do is just break one of those 600 plus laws and you've basically blown the whole thing up. In other words, if I had a circular piece of glass up, this would be a great physical demonstration, but if I had a circular piece of glass up here and I just you know, drew on it with a Sharpie, a little sliver, not that wide, and that little sliver was just one point of the law, and I were to ask you, has anybody in here ever broken this one little point? Yeah, I've broken that one point. And then I took a hammer and just tried to break that little sliver of that round piece of glass. What would happen to the whole piece of glass? I would just shatter. The whole thing would shatter into a million pieces. And that's what James is saying in James 2. No, here's the thing. Close only counts in hand grenades, right? <laughs> it doesn't count with God. God is not interested in you getting close to righteousness. No, if you're going to fellowship with a God who is totally righteous, you better be totally righteous yourself. And I suppose if you could make an argument, I mean, the law is holy. Is the law holy? Yeah, the law is holy. So you could make an argument. If it were possible for a human being to keep every command of the Old Testament, could that save a person? Well, theoretically, the answer is yes. If I could keep every one of them, that would make me like God. But here's the problem. Well, you tell me what the problem. What's the problem? You can't do it. That's right. You can't do it. That's just a total theoretical argument. And you know why you can't do it? S-I-N. You're too broken to do it. And that's why Paul says, if you're relying on the law, you are under a curse. That's right. I mean, if our salvation is predicated on how well we keep the rules, we are doomed. And this is why the way of works is a dead end road. Now, having said all of that, what Paul says next, kind of the clouds part and a, a much needed ray of light comes shining through. Y'all ready to keep reading? And the ray of light happens in verse 13 with the very first word of verse 13. If you're looking at verse 13 right now, I want you to shout out the first word that you see. What is it? One, two, three. Christ. That's the ray of light right there. 
There's your answer. That's how I find God. That's how I receive the necessary righteousness to stand in the presence of God. Not by trying to work it up myself, but by simply receiving it from a righteous Savior who took the curse for me. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, we've got to land the plane this morning, and so let me conclude by giving you, out of that one statement right there, three very important aspects of the cross that come to bear directly on the law's inability to save anybody. First of all, Paul tells us what Christ did. What Christ did. And what did Christ do? Well, it says it. Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us in his death from the curse of the law. That word redeemed is a marketplace term. And it means to purchase by paying a price. Means to buy out of. The idea is to go into a slave market and buy the slave. You pay the ransom price and then you take the slave and you set the slave free. That's the idea of redemption. To to purchase by paying a price so as to liberate the person. The, The word is also used in the context of rescuing prisoners of war, right? You 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 ransom them and you You set them free. And that's what Christ did in his death on the cross. Christ delivered us from the curse of being unable to consistently keep the righteous standard of the law of God. That's a direct result of sin. And that leads to a second aspect of the atonement, namely how Christ did it. What did Christ do? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did Christ do it? Well, he redeemed us by paying the necessary price. And the necessary price, of course, was his death on the cross. That's the ransom. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, in the New Testament period, a cross was often referred to as a tree. And it's not rocket science. Why would they have referred to the cross as a tree, because it was made of of wood. That's right. And so euphemistically, Jesus was often referred to as having died on a tree. Many of our old hymns reflect that very language. And in the Old Testament, uh, we find that anybody who was hung from a tree, like in the classic way of hanging by the neck until dead, they were considered what? Cursed by God, right? And this is part of the reason why Jews of the New Testament era had such a problem. They had such a hard time with Jesus uh, as Messiah. Why? Because he died on a tree. And, And the Bible says anybody that dies on a tree is cursed by God. Right. That's it. Right. Jesus was cursed by God, but not because of anything He did. He was cursed by God because of what we did. That he himself bore as a penalty for our sin by dying instead of us. Christ took the curse that we should have paid. And he bore it 
in his death on the cross. Theologians call that substitutionary atonement. Christ died for us. Christ died instead of us. We should have died. We're the offender. But Christ stood in our place and paid the necessary price for sin. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin, would you say it out loud, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. That's a pretty good trade. Because now it's the absence of the condition of sin and the presence of the righteousness of God that enables me to talk to God, listen to God, hear from God, praise God, worship God, fellowship with God, and one day stand forever in the presence of God. If Christ doesn't take my curse, then I'm left forever under it. And the only thing we have to look forward to is an eternity separated from God. What Christ did why, or how Christ did it, finally we're reminded why Christ did it. Verse 14, so that. Anytime you see a so that, that's a purpose statement or a result statement. Why did Christ do all of that? So that. In Christ Jesus, circle that phrase, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Jesus died bearing our curse so that two things would happen. First, that the blessing of Abraham might go to the Gentiles. You remember the promise God made Abraham and the covenant with Abraham? In you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And here it is right here. Salvation comes to non-Jews. How many of you are non-Jew this morning? That's like all of us. Which puts us right in the line of Abraham. Because his blessing now becomes my blessing. Right standing before God based on faith. And then second, once we've been saved or justified by faith, Paul says now we, will, we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Christ died so that the blessing of Abraham might come to us, the blessing of salvation by faith. And then secondly, Christ died so that we might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit without whom we could not possibly please God. Christ moves into our life. Now Paul's come full circle. Isn't that where he started talking about the Holy Spirit? He's a pretty good lawyer, isn't he? He's come right back to where he began with a statement about the Holy Spirit and how did we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? What Paul left implied in the first five verses of chapter 3, now he makes abundantly plain by the last word, we receive the promised Holy Spirit and what are the last two words of verse 14? Through faith. All because we have a Savior who died on the tree who bore the curse of the law that we could not fulfill with his dying breath. This, brothers and sisters, is Paul's masterful argument in defense of faith over works. Did you receive the Spirit by faith 
or by works? Was Abraham justified by faith or by works? Does the cross of Christ testify to a salvation by faith or by works? The answer, brothers and sisters, is that there are two potential roads, but only one true way. And it's the way of faith. Not just any kind of faith, but a faith in the singular, all-sufficient, dying Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Have you come to God, not on the basis of who you are, where you've come from, or what you've done, but on the basis of nothing but personal weakness, but willing to trust the greatest gift that's ever been given, the sacrifice of Christ, so that you could know, love, and serve God forever and ever.